New writing new norm. Writing new, writing norm. Writing new writing norm. You're listening to a podcast by New Writing Norm. norm. When we think of County Durham, we envision minor strikes and a Norman cathedral. St Cuthbert's Shrine with its headless statue, a post-industrial northern landscape and a world-leading university. It's steeped in history, but we don't tend to talk about County Durham in terms of its literary significance. I'm on a mission to prove that there's more to Durham than meets the eye, that alongside its medieval city and worked-out pits, the county is home to a rich and varied tradition of literature. Over the past few months, I've been seeking out the writers, books and poems that tell the story of County Durham's literary past and present. And in this podcast series, I'll be speaking to authors and poets who either hail from Durham or have made it their home. What does it mean, if anything, to be a Durham writer? What role has this place, unique in so many contradictory ways, played in shaping their work? For our first episode, I'm joined by two of Durham's leading literary figures. Booker Prize winner Pat Barker has lived in Durham for the past 40 years. Her first novel, Union Street, was published in 1982, and that book, as well as others that followed, portrayed the lives of and gave voice to northern working class women. Subsequent novels include the highly acclaimed Regeneration and Life Class trilogies, and last year's The Silence of the Girls, a reimagining of the untold female stories at the heart of the Iliad, which was shortlisted for both the Women's Prize for Fiction and the Costa Novel Award. Benjamin Myers grew up in Belmont, a suburb of Durham City. His debut novel Richard was published in 2010 and was followed by, among others, Beastings, Turning Blue and The Gallows Pole, a retelling of the desperate rise and fall of an 18th century Yorkshire coining gang, which won the 2018 Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction. His latest novel, The Offing, came out last week and is both a BBC Radio 4 book at bedtime and a Radio 2 book club pick. Pat and Ben joined me to talk about place and memory and what calling Durham home means to them as writers. I'm Laura McKenzie and this is Writing Durham. I think for me the significance of Durham and home is that Durham is the place where I don't have to be a writer. Mm-hmm. It's the place where I actually do the writing, but I don't have to fill out the persona of the writer. And when you're travelling to festivals all over the country, it's nice to come back and just be anonymous. Yeah. And it's not easy being anonymous in a place the size of Durham, but I, I, I think it can be managed, actually. Yeah, it's interesting because... I haven't lived here for 25 years, but my parents are here and my family are close by mm-hmm. uh, Newcastle way and friends are still here. <clears throat> so it's, I think you define home, home can change because it's where you're living. And I lived in London for 12 years. I've lived in Yorkshire for 10 years, but Durham is the constant for me. And it's this sort of security blanket in a way, if that's corny, but it's the thing that's unchanged in my life. Yeah, I always come back to Belmont where my parents live. Slightly different to Pat, though, in a way, because in the past, Pat's obviously f- far more successful and, and known than I am. But in the past few years, there's been a couple of successes uh, which have been tied to the northeast. So I've I've been back here a lot more on what I would call business, doing promotion or f- festivals or interviews or or whatever. So I've come back to Durham as a writer in a way in the past two or three years. 
um, and like you know my old teachers are getting in touch and <laughs> my parents friends are asking for signed copy you know just so, yeah. things like that so it, it's 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 slightly strange because in London I was completely anonymous as most people are because it's such a big place and um, where I live in Yorkshire I'm, I'm known particularly for one book that's set there mm-hmm. um, people didn't know I was a writer until this book came out the, the gallows pole but yeah I come back to Durham and often it's 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 to do something literary and I'm researching a book at the moment about St Cuthbert um, and Durham Cathedral and Lindisfarne yeah it's a place that's it's interwoven with like literature at the moment or the past few years it's changed slightly in my yeah. perception I think but there's certain things that are totally unchanged mm-hmm. um, it's weird I come back to sort of Belmont and I was looking out out my old bedroom window last night and there was trees that were my height when we moved into the house are now about 50 feet uh, I noticed little things like that even if I come back a few times a year or some houses have been knocked down or there's a new retail park mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's always changing I see that as a sort of outsider coming back but it's always home yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting the idea of coming home after a big break I mean one of my characters in Liza's England comes back home and sleeps in his old bed and realises that his shoulder blades no longer fit into the grooves in the mattress. <laughs> and, of course, that is made to stand for an awful lot of things that no mm. longer fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm quite sentimental as well, I think. So when I do come back, I often <clears throat> will go to places um, that had significance when I was younger to see how I feel going there now like yesterday I went to Finkel Abbey which I spent a lot of time at as a kid and the first summer I learned to drive we would drive there and sit by the river and do whatever teenagers do so I went back yesterday <laughs> but the, 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 that bit was fenced off actually that was sort oh, of no. yeah the, there's now a sort of bit of the caravan park there it's bigger and it's private land yeah. and you couldn't get down to the little foreshore that we used to sit and drink beer on so I, I do I do that quite a bit. I sort of almost see Durham as a, a slightly, no, I'm, I feel partially tourist, but it's not not a tourist who's here to see the obvious sights. It's more a tourist visiting my own past. Mm-hmm. And I went back, and usually things are smaller when you're when you the, the the sort of when you're an adult. But I went to Finkel Abbey, and it was so much bigger than I remember. That was the week, and that never really happens. You usually go to places. Yeah, and did you like, go? Mm-hmm. Used to go to the railway viaduct when you were a teenager down the, the yes, woods along yes, from there yeah. there was a certain point when that was closed off I used to take my dog walking yeah. across that and uh, it, I think boys were daring each other we to did walk that. across yeah. the parapet and it's, it was all mm. crumbling <clears throat> I had a friend, we used to go on there when it was fenced off which would be early 90s yeah and one friend hung off there by his hands off the rusty railing dangled over the edge yeah. Um, would do things like that for a, for a day. That, I mean, well, yeah. But I mean, you, you, you look at teenage boys and you just wonder how anybody turns into a man. Don't yeah, you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems single-mindedly determined not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing about Durham, I, I sort of, it's only when I moved away that I realised how beautiful it is and how it's nicer yeah. than almost. It's nicer than most. Well, it's, it's hard to say really, but it is nicer than most towns and well, cities. Well, you do get acclimatised to it. When you're it's so green. within it all the time, but yeah. So I haven't been back to Durham for I don't know a month or two months until today, and just driving past the cathedral, and you do get struck by yeah. it. And it was the classic, the cathedral, but it is beautiful. It is. 
But there's, there's this, sense, this sense when you've grown up in a place, you look at a tree, and it's a tree that you climbed when mm. you were six, seven, eight years old. And an adult never looks at a tree, never knows the tree properly, because they've never climbed yeah. it. They yeah. don't know what it feels like. Yeah. yeah. And Durham is a interesting place to grow up because I've, I've it's many different it's many different things Durham it's, mm-hmm. there's many different layers to it I think like like most cities but possibly more so because you've got this sort of the historic me- medieval Norman architecture you've got academia the whole student world and the, the campuses and that's a different and the prisons and the prisons yeah, yeah. it's dominated by prisons yeah. yeah and it's had some of the most yeah the best the best place writing about Durham is Tony Harrison yeah. Uh, you know, and that, that very vitriolic poem, uh, something about it ends like something like dog chasing its own tail, university, cathedral, jail. And when did you come to Durham? Oh, I can't remember exactly. <laughs> uh, in the seventies. I mean, it was, uh, it was like a lot of married women. Of course, I went where my husband's job was, mm-hmm. uh, and I ended up in Durham. It wasn't a choice. So no, it wasn't a choice. It's not a. I don't know. I I, I do feel a link to Durham now. Yeah. I mean, I walk into the cathedral, and the cathedral feels like home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the cathedral feels like home to an awful lot of people who have not even the most residual uh, religious faith. Yeah. But it just is part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I was in there recently and um, they think they're going to have to start charging. They're one of the few cathedrals that don't charge yeah. entrance, but they're struggling. That's they're going to have to start charging. So I think that's going to change the dynamic. That's a great somewhat. pity, isn't it? Yeah, it's a shame. Uh, I wonder yeah. why now, after a thousand years, <laughs> yeah, why well, now yeah. do they need to charge? I wonder why, yeah. in what way they're struggling now in, in a way that they wouldn't have been. 200 or 500 years ago I wonder yeah. what well of course the great the great sort of thing the terrible thing that happened to Durham was Thomas and Beckett getting assassinated <laughs> uh, they were rolling in money till that happened because they had Cuthbert yeah and Cuthbert was the major shrine mm-hmm. but then it shifted to Canterbury well, it? yeah that's one of the other things about Durham or this region is it's the sort of essentially the birthplace of modern Christianity so you've got that underneath the surface yeah. of everything, mm-hmm. even if most people would probably call themselves atheists or mild, mildly Christian. <laughs> a mild Christian. <laughs> you know, like that. You know, this sort of yeah. am- am- amateurs. Christian like. Yeah, uh, yes, flirt, yeah, flirting with it. People <laughs> yeah. say I'm a Christian, but that's because they went to C of E school or whatever. Mm-hmm. So underneath everything, you've got this weight of history, like a bedrock, mm-hmm. of which Cuthbert is the. The symbol, the figurehead, still really amongst many others, Bede and various others. And is that something you're looking at at the moment? Yeah, it's what I'm. Yeah, I'm working on. Um, <clears throat> well, four books. Four books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. four yeah. novellas mm-hmm. centered around thematically around Saint Cuthbert mm-hmm. and his resting place of Durham Cathedral. And I'm writing them as four standalone novellas mm-hmm. with the idea that hopefully they would be published separately and then collated together 
as and read as a four-part You're novel. You're doing an Alice Smith, aren't you? Yeah, yeah <laughs> essentially. Yeah, has been, yeah. has been noted. <laughs> I think it's um, a great thing to do, actually. But the, the first one is Concerns, which I've had, which I've finished. Um, I've been on Holy Island a lot this year, mm-hmm. staying there. Cuthbert died there, and then his body was carried around the northeast for 100 years yeah. by a small... I mean, you probably know, it's about a small community yeah. of followers. Yeah. So I wanted to tell, look at the, the practicalities of a small community carrying... Um, a corpse around while Vikings were invading the, the coast. logistics. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and the only way to tell it, I thought, was to just uh, look at a, a, you know a few days or a few weeks and a personal level of a few monks and mm-hmm. yeah. various. Uh, and are, are you on. going to? Are the other novellas in a different time period? Yeah, the, yeah. yeah the, the last one is set now, and it's about a, a sort of um, a young man who ends up doing some labouring on renovations and the cathedral oh, right, in yeah. austerity England. Yes. <coughs> Are you going to do the, the marvellous thing of the uh, the raids in the Second World War and the St Cuthbert's Mist? Well... Which uh, saved the cathedral. <laughs> it <laughs> well, doesn't fit the into the time frame. I thought, there's so yeah. much to write about that yes. I've had to... Um, learn a lot and then abandon it i um, love that story because i don't I mean, know that story oh yes yeah the, 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 a sea fret essentially rolled yeah. in which is characteristic of the region and the bombers turned back mm. what mm. the sea fret reached to durham yes yeah interesting well, you know the, the, you do get you do get mornings in winter in yeah. durham where the, the the fog just hangs around all yeah. day and it's not forecast it's just blown in it's interesting because that story sort of ties in with various other myths surrounding Cuthbert when he was alive which were attributed to being yeah. acts of miracles yeah. you know the uh, <clears throat> when when the monks were wandering with his body they decided they were going to go to Ireland leave England it'd be safer there because of the Viking attacks they set sail but then they believe that Cuthbert said no and turned the tide and made the sea choppy well obviously it's just yeah. weather conditions but yeah. there's there's various um, things relating to weather yeah. And the topography of the landscape have been sort of claimed as miracles. So, have you been working in the archives, of the cathedral? The, n- not yet, but I've been um, I've been on Lindisfarne a lot. Mm-hmm. I've read about forty or fifty books about Saint Cuthbert yeah. and Lindisfarne Priory, and I've been staying there by myself for spells and doing as cl- well. It's the look. It's the luxury version. This is the swimming in the sea. Bit, yeah, isn't it? I, yeah. Yes. I've yeah. been going and staying there. I, 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 I swim a lot outdoors anyway. But I've mm-hmm. been swimming in because uh, he he would go and stand in the sea and pray. Yeah. And then there's the story of otters coming and drying his feet and things like that. So I've been doing a lot of that. So mm-hmm. I've been out in the sea. Every no day. luck with the otters yet. No otters. I saw one seal. <laughs> um, and. And I have like this robe for swimming, which is like a, a toweling. It looks like a monk's cowl. I, I got it. An actual robe. Yeah, with a hood. But it, uh, swimmers use them. It's instead of a towel, you just put this on oh, and it dries yeah. you. Yeah. By coincidence. Mm-hmm. So every day I was down on the beach, the far shore of Lindisfarne, wearing this monk's robe and swimming in the sea. <laughs> and then walking back across the island and just reading a lot and visiting the Priory. So I, mm-hmm. this is all for the first novella, which is set... Um, way back in his time but yeah the the, the second and third novellas are going to be set um in different eras yeah. one one will probably about the exhumation of his corpse mm-hmm. um there's a lot to learn because i'm not a historian at all they always say write what you know don't they and i'm, I'm not <laughs> yes yeah well the offing is about a boy robert who leaves durham he leaves the pit village what's the significance there of <clears throat> the leaving 
that kind of relates to your own experience from what you said. Yeah, I think so. Uh, probably on, on a sort of subconscious level, it's probably the thought. You just grow up in a place and you take it for granted. But when I went to university, suddenly I was a northerner mm. and everyone was... A lot of people didn't understand. A lot of people said to me, where are you from in Ireland? Where are you from in Wales? Where are you from in Scotland? I got that loads in the first couple of weeks. Mm. I so, think, do, you, do you find that uh, at home you were, your accent was probably considered quite posh? Whereas as soon as you leave the North East, yeah. they pick it up. Not necessarily accurate, <clears throat> but they pick it up and suddenly you're not posh at all. Yeah, I found you, that you at university. Yeah, yeah. You, you, yeah, you're different... You're a different person to different people, yeah. I think. Like, yeah. if I'm down in London for publishing events, I'm suddenly aware of my accent because I'm not privately educated. And Yeah, well, I'm aware of my accent yeah. too. And it's, uh, I read something by um, David Storey, uh, I think as a novelist, isn't much read now. I, I love David Storey. Yeah, I, I love David Storey yeah. too. And he was he was playing rugby league fo- football in the north. <coughs> and he was an art student in Durham. Mm-hmm. And literally, those tunnels outside King's Cross, he would go into those tunnels as one <coughs> as one person and come out as another mm. yeah. at the other end yeah. and uh, every time I go through those tunnels I think that and I think it's uh, uh, an experience that a lot of northerners have mm-hmm. yeah I, I, th- I work as a journalist and when I when I started on a paper age 21 22 I, I had to <clears throat> slow down how I talked I think and soften and drop some words which mm-hmm. were probably slang words which yeah. you, it's just how you talk but yeah. so I think um, in the offing it's about a young man but he's from a pit village which I'm not from yeah. and I think those pit villages in the time that I was writing about which is post-war not, not the first summer after the second world war <clears throat> village life was a lot more closed off I think they were so, uh, they were probably, from what I can tell, self-contained worlds, and they would have the worker men's club, and some of them would have swimming pools and saunas, and they were, you know, almost entirely based around the pit. Mm-hmm. And Durham, I, I was, I've always, I was struck by, I mean, Billy Elliot, which is quite a sentimental film, but I liked it. Um, there's a line where he goes down south for a, a ballet audition. And one of the sort of posh boys says, oh, Durham, wonderful. I yeah, hear it's got a wonderful Norman cathedral. And he just says, well, I don't know, I've never been. Yeah. And he's yeah. from, he's from what is probably Easington, so yes, seven or eight yeah. miles away. Yeah, yeah. And that struck me. And I thought that's true because I know I, I, I've, I've met people like that who um, Durham City is might as well be London if you mm-hmm. live, particularly in the 1940s and you had no not much money. Except yeah. for Gala Day. One day in the which is the bit I meant in the yeah. book. He, yes. he, his only knowledge of Durham is going to the uh, Miners Gala, yeah, mm. which isn't a typical day in Durham because it's a huge event and yeah. centered around mining. So I think I maybe took a bit of my experience of leaving Durham and sort of amplified it into this character who mm-hmm. who who wanted who's got an ambition to see beyond his village yeah. because he knows. He's been told from birth that you know, you, you, like your dad and your granddad, you'd be going down the pit. But he's a reader and he's into nature and he's a free thinker. So yeah. he thinks I'm going to go wandering down the country lanes. Yeah. This is, this might be my last stab at freedom. And then it transpires that he sees 
the whole world. Yeah, so it's an outward trajectory rather than a downward trajectory. That's what struck me. It's going out instead of yeah. down into the mines. But one of the other, one of the things that gets mentioned a lot about sort of writers from the north or the regions is this idea of um, wanting to escape. Mm. And I disagree with that because uh, the, the idea that you, oh, if you become a writer or a pop star or a footballer, you can escape the north. Mm-hmm. So, well, why would you? Why do you want to escape the north? Yeah. The idea that you can leave, you can move somewhere else, somewhere better, and for, for a lot of people, it's home. And yeah, I think people are happier in the northeast than a lot of other regions I've been in and stayed in. Yeah. Well, you said coming here wasn't a choice, but you've chosen to stay. I've chosen to stay. You've chosen not to locate yourself in the, you know, the southern publishing hub. Yes, and I'm glad I I'm glad I'm not part of it actually. I think I think like Ben says, there's a great advantages to having a certain distance from it. But you do sometimes feel that you're literally going into another world when you yeah. when you <laughs> you visit it. Yeah. Yeah. Pat and Ben join me to talk about place and memory and what calling Durham home means to them as writers oh god yes i, I mean I, I i remember coming to the gallery even before i lived in durham uh where it was marching midas yeah. <laughs> which it's it, it's not what it is now and uh what was particularly moving is that if there had been a death at the in one of the pits during the year the banners were draped in black mm-hmm. and that contingent marched in silence so along this sort of necklace of um men winding their way through the streets there was sort of one black bead mm. uh, this bead of silence mm. and grief and in one scene never forgotten yeah. and it, it's still got it, it's still got its moments but uh, it's changed it's you know nature fundamentally yeah because there's a lot of nostalgia around the collieries but they were so dangerous and so many people lost their lives it's actually quite a dark history yes yes and uh, the grief for the loss of the mining communities yeah it's all very well but a lot of lives were curtailed very very quickly Mm -hmm. Uh, it interests me you see that barry unsworth who, uh, who a novelist i very much respect um was grew up in a mining community and his father started life at least as a miner uh, and he was always pleased and relieved that his parents had got him out of that mm. fate mm-hmm. and he cho- he never as far as i'm aware ever wrote about durham he he went to live abroad uh, he worked for the british council and he wrote about you know wonderful places and uh, that was it and he started writing history because he felt, in the end, so out of tune with modern Britain mm-hmm. that he, he just couldn't write contemporary fiction anymore. I think he was from we- Weedley Hill, is that right? Oh, or, or Wingate. Wingate. Yeah, which Wingate, is yeah, yes, it's one yeah. of the villages just yes, kind yeah. of where, well, it's just beyond where I'm from, but mm-hmm. where, where the offing is set in a village like that, uh-huh. yeah, an amalgamation of a few of those yeah. East, East Durham villages, yeah. In a Guardian article you, where you write about Durham, you describe the suburbs or Belmont as edgelands, or people call them edgelands, but you call them home. Yeah. And there's a part in the offing where you talk about, where Robert's talking about the place where the flagstones of the city meet the fields of the wider northeastern mm-hmm. England. And is that, 
how much of that sense of edgeland is important to you when you're writing about Durham uh, and where in most uh, everything I write I swear, edgeland is kind of a uh, buzzword at the moment isn't yeah. it really particularly in nature writing and it's really just to describe the places which are neither rural nor urban mm-hmm. or suburban it's the fringes of everything really but growing up in Belmont I was always aware that um, it, it was entirely new really it was all it, it was literally fields you know you hear old men I remember when it was fields around here but in the 60s it was uh, which is you know, I was born in the 70s but um, I've got, got photos of the house I grew up in being, being built in fields you wouldn't know it now wandering around because it's, it's a it's a big estate where I grew up it's sort of lower middle class estate built for young professionals mm-hmm. close to the motorway so you could they could commute to work mm-hmm. and with an infrastructure you can walk to Durham really it's two or three miles away but it only occurred to me quite recently you could walk from Durham Cathedral to to where I grew up on paths and pavements and tarmac and asphalt and then about 50 metres past my parents' house, it's a country lane, and then it's fields and scrubland and uh, sort of edge land, if you want, yeah, and cornfields. And and so I was always aware that there was, there's these two worlds rubbing up against each other. And in the time that I've been away, I can now walk back to that country lane and look, and I'll see there's like a retail park and a big B&Q sign and yeah. a McDonald's sign and Kentucky Fried Chicken poking above the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not against progress or anything like that, but I can just see it, 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 it it's spreading like a spilt water. Yeah. It's seeping. That's uh, mm. not necessarily criticism, just an observation yeah. that the fields are probably, and this is indicative of much of mm. England, the it's, fields it's, are shrinking. It's, it's interesting to me that Belmont where you grew up. I used to live in Newton Hall and uh, for a long time we lived in Newton Hall and the two areas, although they're superficially similar, semi-detached houses with gardens, uh, they're quite different because on Newton Hall uh, one in three houses I think is prison water Hmm. Uh, and the whole place is dominated by the prisons. I mean, it, the going off shift and coming on shift, you're very aware of it by the movement of the cars. And there's the top security prison and the Young Offenders Institution mm-hmm. there. And they're the main employers. And it always fascinated me that the lives of the free people outside were to such a large extent determined by the institutional movement uh, of these two big, enormous prisons. I remember growing up hearing about, um, do you remember John McVicker, the case? Uh, yes, I used to walk my dog on the, his escape route. Yeah. <laughs> he was, do you know about John McVicker? No. He was a prisoner in the, uh, would it be the late 60s or early 70s? Yeah, they, that, that kind <clears> of he time, was a, yes. a sort of category A prisoner in, in Durham Prison who undertook a daring escape over the walls There's a, there was a film made about it and Roger Daltrey played him and it's it a good film actually um, but yeah he, he had it away as they used to say over the wall and into the river uh-huh. and floated downstream for several miles chased by the authorities and dogs in the night and w- will have drifted yeah. down yes. close to where Pat used to live and went on the run um, 
but I was always uh, and but the police were out on mass. This was bef- before my time, but I remember my parents got a knock on the door in Belmont. You know, three, four, yes, five miles yeah. away. Everyone was visited by the police. Have check your sheds, you know, uh, uh, check your gardens. It How exciting! A, it was yeah, it was exciting. <laughs> but but to, that was interesting because he didn't. You know, there's there's motorways and there's train stations and this and that. But his escape route was through the, the river Weir. Yeah, it was a remarkable escape. I, I remember when the the top security prison was being built, Franklin, and one of its great selling point was that it was rocket proof. And, of course, all the houses <laughs> around it thought, well, that's very nice for the prisoners. <laughs> what about us? Yeah. That seems like a good place to stop for a reading. Ben, would you be happy to yeah. read something from... I should point out offing? that the bulk of the offing is set in Robin Hood's Bay. <clears throat> so it's actually Yorkshire. But it's written with the idea of Durham in the background as somewhere he has left... He's been Robert, the narrator, has been formed by Durham and shaped by it, but he's only, to me, as the, as the writer, he's only partly formed, mm-hmm. and, and the true formation comes when he leaves, which I think is what happens with a lot of people. Um, so there's just a little bit about him reflecting on. This relates to what I was saying really about his experience of Durham was limited, yeah, because he's from County Durham rather than Durham City in two different places. So it's about that. I didn't go into the city much at all. That would require a bus journey in from the village and a bus journey required money and I never had any. I'd only visited the cathedral once on a school trip. The city seemed to me a place for lecturers and students in their gowns and silly hats and young men and women who went to the good schools and carried stacks of books beneath their arms and who didn't speak as I spoke and who would soon join the academics and students at their seats of higher learning in other such cities. It was a place where clergymen dashed down cobbled streets and coxers shouted orders through loud hailers at the rowing crews who trained on the river, and tourists alighted from charabangs to stand and point at the castle, and people ate scones and drank pots of tea from chiming china cups and saucers while sitting in pretty Georgian windows, and flush-faced rugby teams celebrated their least their latest successes on the playing fields with pub crawls. The only real reason to visit was for the Miners' Gala, which we called a big meeting for one Sunday in July, when all the colliery bands would gather to march and play, and we would carry the banners all the way down to the racecourse fields, where there were speeches and stalls and fairground rides, and tens of thousands of people would eat and drink and sing, and gypsy boys would strip off their tops to fight the local lads. An evening would turn tonight and we'd take the long ride home, our stomach sick with sugar and too many chips. But that was for one day a year, and I had not been since I was a child, because for five long years of the war the miners' gala had been cancelled, and this time around I would miss it anyway. Thank you. Why did you choose that specific period like in the wake of the Second World War? Um, I'm- I don't know really. I honestly don't know. I'm get, the book's not out yet, and I haven't haven't done any interviews about it. Mm-hmm. Other than this is the first one, so I'm now starting to think about. Oh yeah, it's the why. first interview. It's terrible. What's it about? Yeah, well, <laughs> and you don't about, know, do you? I, I don't know. I know why I wrote it, and that was yeah. because um, 
I wrote it as a as a sort of holiday for myself from writing grim books and mm-hmm. bleak uh, stories set around the, the northeast and Cumbria and and Yorkshire, and it was a sunny world that, that I would visit, <clears throat> and I wrote most of it by hand in yeah. the Halifax Library, and it sounds. Um, disingenuous or a bit false modesty but I didn't write it thinking it would get published I wrote it to sort of cleanse my my mind yeah. at a time when the world has turned into shit yeah. and politics is awful and I thought I've, I've put out some pretty nihilistic books really and, and there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of masculinity masculinity in them and I wanted to write something I thought what's the point of putting something nasty into the world right now it's not contributing anything why not try and do something sunny and positive? And also with a sort of lead female character as well, because I've written a lot of men and I needed to see whether I could write. I love Dulcie. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> but why it's post-war, I don't know, other than the fact that it was um, Britain was entirely changed. And I, th- I thought a young man going out into the aftermath would see a world that was depleted. And like so many of Pat's books about mm-hmm. conflict and war, it's about the um, Pat writes about the repercussions and the way in which men are damaged, or well, not just men, men and women, but often the the, the male workforce in this case in the offing, which is a, he passes through lots of agricultural land, and a lot of the farms aren't farming because they need to after the war because of <clears throat> rationing is still existing, but a lot of men just simply haven't come back, or those who have are in no state to work. So mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to write about. An England that's uh, in transition, I suppose, as it always is, but particularly then. And out of that came sort of um, economic upturn in the 50s. But it was that period where England was, or Britain was seen to have been victorious. Yeah. But what was there to show for it other than the, the freedom of its citizens? There was, there was no great wealth or anything. So there was no abundance from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. Pat, one of your more recent short stories, Medusa, is partially set in Durham. Would you mind reading us something from that? I'll just read the beginning. By the time I left the cathedral, it was already dark, mizzling, the kind of rain that looks like mist but drenches you in minutes. I walked quickly, head down. In the marketplace, the Friday night bonanza was well underway, Girls in tight dresses and vertiginous heels, teetering along in noisy groups, watched by boys who pretended indifference and turned back to their mates, laughing. How did girls walk in those things? I could barely manage in the heels I was wearing, and they were nowhere near as high. Mind, I don't normally wear heels. Jeans and trainers, that's me. Only that afternoon, I'd felt the need to make an effort, because I'd been supervising the hanging of my paintings in the Galilee Chapel, my first solo exhibition. As I turned into Silver Street, I was hardly aware of my surroundings. I was still walking around the exhibition in my head, all recent work, all on the theme of metamorphosis, women turning into hares, foxes, crows, cows, fish, seals, trees. I'd been looking at those paintings for so long I couldn't see them anymore. Sometimes when paintings first leave home, they seem a bit weak, clingy, as if all they really want to do is get back to the studio as fast as possible. But these felt different, strong, independent, even a bit supercilious. 
What have we to do with you? They seem to be asking, sitting there snug behind their sleek black frames. A good sign, perhaps. Out of the corner of my eye, I caught a movement, but it was only my own shadow flitting across the blank windows where Marks and Spencers used to be. Was it there that I picked up a second shadow? I don't know that I did, of course. So Medusa goes on to narrate or chronicle an attack. Um, an attack on this girl, yes. And uh, essentially very much uh, she initially believes the man she finds in her kitchen after going out to empty the rubbish is a student because mm -hmm. all the houses surrounding her are students as they tend to be in the centre of Durham. And uh, yes, and then she then moves on quite rapidly uh, mm. to Florence and uh, the, the artwork she sees in Florence and uses to uh, help her to recover from what's happened to her. Mm -hmm. the, it's one of, when we initially talked, we were talking about the relationship between Durham and your work and you said, well, there isn't a huge relationship, but there are these two stories. Yes. of Silence and Medusa, which both, as it happens, have female protagonists. Yes. Uh, I'm not, I don't know why. I think because they are closer to my home, perhaps. Uh, 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 a female protagonist seems uh, more natural, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not that they're in any way autobiographical anyway, but, you know, no. I don't know why, really. The final, the close of the story where she sees herself in the mirror... Um, and then she returns to the restaurant and the man turns to stone. Yeah, she t she turns into the Medusa. Yeah. It's, I think it's a sh short story about uh, the way in which even fully justified anger mm -hmm. destroys the person who feels it, yeah. not the person who is the object of it. It's, I think, questioning the Me Too movement. And, you know, obviously, I'm uh, uh, applauding a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but if the only response is anger, then that is a self-destructive response, ultimately. Mm -hmm. We talked, touched briefly on Barry Unsworth. I suppose one of the things I want to think about as well is whether you have a sense of there being um, a literary tradition in Durham or it being a place of literary richness where different writing and writers have come out of. Is that something when you started writing Ben you had a sense of that or not really no yeah <laughs> um I was aware growing up of Pat <laughs> was the only writer I knew of I'd yeah. heard of from the area there was uh, uh, Gordon Byrne was an influence and I'm mm. a fan of his writing he's from Newcastle and I was inspired by the fact that he was a, a journalist who wrote fiction but I've got a very strong memory um of being probably about seven or eight years old on holiday in France in a caravan. And I was always a voracious reader, but there was a book that my mum had on holiday and it was on the side by the window in the sun and I picked it up and it had a pencil drawing on the cover and it was Union Street, Pat's first book. Mm -hmm. And I said to my mum, what's this? And she said, oh, that's a really interesting. That book is about I can't. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mm. reaching back into memory, but she said something like, this, "This is about women in the northeast of England, and uh, she is 
the author lives in Durham and I was, I was quite struck by like I remember holding this book which I was too young to read and appreciate at age seven or eight mm. but I just remember thinking there's a writer from Durham and she has written a book about the area rather than writing about something fantastical or uh, something in America because I grew up surrounded by American culture on TV and I just I was struck by the fact that someone from here wants to write about here mm-hmm. and I think that stayed with me and I didn't read the book for m- till many years later it's, it's the only lit- literary heritage I was aware of was, was, was kind of Pat's early works and yeah. the idea that someone would find round here interesting enough to write about and that makes you think well of course it is and yeah. everywhere is interesting enough and the idea that you know, somebody's actually done it uh, I was reading in The Guardian an interview with um, Simon Armitage and he was saying that uh, it was immensely important to him as a, a young lad beginning to write poetry that he lived in the next valley to Ted Hughes mm. and uh, and that Ted Hughes's house that he grew up in was like the house that Armitage grew up in. It looked the same. And that that's, it's being given permission to be who you are and still be a writer and uh, it's the it's the only thing that can do it because you know Ben like me comes from a background where being a writer wasn't what one of the jobs that was open to you mm-hmm. we don't come from literary backgrounds in that sense and it's immensely important to be able to see somebody who is in some way like you from your area or, you know writing the kind of things that you might want to write whether there is a literary tradition in durham i, I i'm not sure i think if there is it's uh, part of the tradition of working class writing mm-hmm. uh, and in that sense it's not purely local to Durham anyway it's nationwide I, uh, I was aware of Sid Chaplin growing, growing yeah. up but uh, and you know Alan Silito people you know people like that but when I first started trying to write about working class women I felt there was not a great deal of ta- of tradition to draw on mm-hmm I felt I was scratching around. Sheila Delaney, for example. Mm. Uh, people like that were the people who mattered to me. And uh, actually, as it happens, a lot of them were northern, though not specifically Durham. Yeah, I think more, in more recent times, I've gone back to try and find, to look to see who else there is out there. And Sid Chaplin was someone I discovered only yeah. five or ten years ago. And so I collect his books, really just because I keep coming across them and he was, you know, worked in a colliery office. I I took part in a radio programme about, uh, they came to my house to interview me about Sid Chaplin. And one of the questions which they were asking everybody was uh, why is Sid Chaplin, who's a fantastic writer, not really had the recognition uh, he deserves? And, of course, I waffled around and waffled around. And uh, then the interviewer said, well, I asked Melvin Bragg that, and he said, it's because they're all fucking snobs. (laughs) And I immediately (laughs) thought, that's what I should have said. Yeah, Yeah, because that's the truth. 
Yeah, he's from a completely different planet to the London to, literary to London world, literati, which is yes, where the money is, and yeah. the publishing deals yeah. are. Yeah. And it's still, still, still like that now. Yeah, really. it is. I mean, I, I, I did an, uh, you know, I did an English degree, mm-hmm. and I grew up with books in the house. My parents were teachers, but I can still feel like not out of my depth, but it, like I've, I'm stepping into. Uh, sharp pool. <laughs> yeah. No, that that sounds harsh because most people I meet in publishing are very nice mm-hmm. and very well mannered and and good at their jobs. But I do feel like it's just simply from coming from the northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, I met last week. I met um, well, I met someone in publishing. I'll not identify them, but they. <laughs> um, I've just my new book's coming out on Bloomsbury, and I was told that um, oh, as far, you're the first northern writer that's been signed. To Bloomsbury in the time he this guy's been working in the business for fifteen years. He said I've never come across a, a writer from the north. He said there's there's some a couple of children's uh, authors or young adult writers, but he said in terms of literary fiction, I don't think Bloomsbury have signed anyone from the north, which is insane. Yeah. Imagine if he said they've never yeah. signed anyone from London and the southeast for yeah. fifteen twenty years. Yeah, so it still exists. And also when you when you start out writing about. Northern life, well, nor especially northern working class life, you get a particular set of questions in interviews. You're always asked, "Is this character typical?" Well, you know, would you ever ask whether a middle class character was a doctor or a teacher or a journalist? Mm-hmm. Yes, but is it typical? I yeah. mean, actually, to say that your characters are typical is so close to staying their stereotypes that it's a bloody insult. Yeah, <laughs> and. Yeah, there's a lot of preconceptions. They don't, they don't yeah. know how to approach your work if you write like that. In terms of class and politics, Durham is atypical. I know we've talked about the EU referendum and the result from the city being, um, I think it was 57% remain, whereas Easington, for example, was 66% leave. And that's quite a unique position to be in. So how much do you think that plays into your sense of Durham and Durham in relation to the rest of the North or the rest of the country. It is completely atypical. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of another uh, county town which would as more out of step with its county. And I can't think of one, can mm. you? Um, no, I can't. No, no. <laughs> I, I don't know the statistics on other 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 counties really but yeah Durham there's probably the the disparity between the two is probably as great as any or greater than anywhere else and that just uh, maybe relates to what I was saying before about oh, there's loads of different Durhams yeah there's the yeah. Durham of yeah. the I, I can totally see why someone in Easington would vote to leave yeah um because it's just a cry it's it's a sort of middle finger up at it's an anti-establishment vote for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. it's at all in. Vi- I don't think it's all based in prejudice and fear. A lot of it's people are just sick and. But but Durham City's you know relatively affluent and there's a lot of professionals and academics and people who actually work in things like science where funding is coming from the EU. So they, they, they mm-hmm. on a practical level they they may be more connected and can see a real. Um, yes, yeah. They'll see what yeah. will happen if or when we leave, and it's a very varied place, County Durham, isn't it? It is. I mean, Durham's a city, but I, I don't, I don't really think of it as a city. I think of it as a town. And I don't know whether that's. I'd agree with you on that. 
yes, yeah. yeah. It's a town it's a, with it's a cathedral. It's only a city in the sense that it's got a cathedral. Yeah, it's small enough to, certainly when I was a teenager, if you, if I came into town on a Saturday and you wander around long enough and you bump into friends and people mm-hmm. you, you meet, know. You'd meet people you know. And you can walk from one end to the other. I mean, you yeah. and I kind of my age. Yeah, mm-hmm. in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. My mum would, if I went out shopping with my mum, every two or three minutes she would stop and talk to someone. And that's what makes it feel like a town rather than a city. Yeah. But the uh, the emptying out of the high street is not peculiar to Durham. It's it's all over the country. But I think a place like Durham perhaps feels it even more because mm-hmm. people are not going into the centre in the way they used to do. And therefore this uh, sort of bumping into people mm. is, is a thing of the past, I think, yeah. becoming a thing of the past. So... Ben, we know you're doing, well, looking at St Cuthbert next. Pat, can I ask what's your next project you're thinking about now or is there uh, anything in the pipeline? Uh, oh, yes, there's something in the pipeline. Uh, I don't, uh, it hasn't quite reached its final form. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I know very well that Penguin want me to go on doing what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they really do. Do you feel pressure to...? Uh, no, I, 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 I mean... I've got an amazing publisher, Simon Prosser, and he I know he wouldn't pressurise me at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, the common sense thing that a pressurised writer doesn't write well. You've, you've got, we've got to be given our head. Do you need to write, do you feel like, do you need a sort of empty diary? I need a... a, a a diary isn't actually insane. Yeah. I, I need a run at it. Yeah. You know? no, not, not, not the luxury of months, but two or three weeks is nice. You know, and I, haven't got, I still haven't got that at the moment. That's it for today's inaugural edition of Writing Durham. I really hope you enjoyed listening to it, and many thanks to Pat Barker and Benjamin Myers for taking part in the conversation. This podcast was supported by Durham University as part of a wider project on Durham's literary heritage, which has been funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council.